Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Okay, good morning, Hillside. So, we decided, I know, you're like, wait a minute, we didn't sing. What's happening? Where's the band? There's, there's stuff still here. We're going to get to it at the end. We just said, you know what, let's change it up. Let's respond today in worship. Let's have a time to reflect at the end. So we switched it up, right? So a lot of things changed this week. Sports is back. I know. I just, there was something on my TV. I don't think I turned my TV on for anything for like four months. So it was really other than like kid shows for for my kiddo. But so that was pretty weird. So, you know, we're just changing it up this week, getting, uh, get, keeping everybody on their toes. Um, I'm grateful and I always love the opportunity to get to speak on a Sunday with you guys, uh, especially throughout the summer. Um, so today I want to let you know um, for quarantine, and I'm sure you can relate with this, for quarantine in the last couple months, I have struggled to connect with studying and being in God's Word, just personally for myself. I think it's because I'm a technology person. I love having gadgets and things on my phone. And so I use, you know, the Bible app and I have these study apps. And, and once we were um, pulled away from a normal day-to-day routine of being able to connect with one another, I, you're just glued to your device. And it's really hard to me to be able to separate time with him when there are other apps and social media and things that can buzz and jump on the screen. And so I found myself not only just snoozing notifications, I actually have deleted these apps off my phone, all of them, social media and otherwise. And I said, I'm going to go back to a book because I, I need this focus and that, and that focus on where I think God wants me. And so um, I looked through scriptures, and for, for the summer, I've been in Micah, in the book of Micah. And I really uh, have been praying about getting to speak on this book uh, to you for a while now. And multiple times I said, okay, God, you know, what, what section are we going to look at? You know, what, what can we focus on? He said, the whole thing. I said, no, 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 really, like, let, let's find like 10, 12, no, the whole thing. So... <laughs> I'm going to stay true to what I feel like he's laid on my heart, and we're going to have a synopsis of the book of Micah. And you go, wow, that sounds like a really big, okay, it's only seven chapters. In terms of the Old Testament, that's pretty good, all right? We could be dealing with Psalms, but what we're going to do is a Micah 101. And so this is my hope, is that we look at its themes, we look at its context, what did it have to say to the people of that time, and how we can apply it. But really, this is a challenge from me to you to read it this week. One chapter, a week, uh, one chapter a day this week, okay? There's a lot of themes to drag out, but it's convicting and it's heavy. So let's kind of scope out and set up and see exactly what we're looking at, okay? So Micah is the name of the prophet that was during right around the time of 730 BC, okay? So this puts us at a timeline when Israel and Judah were separated into two kingdoms, Okay, you had the northern and the southern kingdom. Now, what we know is that in just a a few short years, then 722, Israel is going to be wiped out by the Assyrian Empire. And God is actually going to explain why that occurs to a degree in this book today. All right, then we know that a few decades later, Judah is going to be wiped out by Babylon. This book of Micah also gives proclamation of this event to occur soon. So there's a reason for this, this occurring. And remember, this was devastating. 
The people of Israel were meant to be the promised, chosen people to bless the nations for God to deliver through, and they were going to be crushed. And so this is a, a very difficult message, and, and I, it's really um, it's humbling, to say the least. I've learned a lot from it, and I really hope we can learn something together. Here's what commentators do. They break it up typically into three, sometimes four sections depending on how they want to look at and break down the text. And so I really like where they broke it down in three sections, mainly because each section in the Hebrew text begins with the word listen or hear me. And so each section has a very heavy, very difficult text of judgment, of condemnation against the people for their sins. And then it always follows, and it's almost whiplash, where it goes from this judgment to hope very fast. There's no pause. It happens right within the same chapter sometimes. So each section does that, and I want to look at them briefly today. So let's, let's pray before we get into the thick of it. God, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. We're thankful we get to speak of your word and praise your name. May we learn from it and see what you did with this people and how we can grow and see your grace and mercy for those that follow after you. We trust in you. Amen. All right, so we have the timeline. We have a little bit about how the text is separated. Let's see what God says. So through Micah, listen, all you nations, pay attention, all inhabitants of earth. The sovereign Lord will act as a witness against you. The Lord will accuse you from his majestic palace. Look, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling place. He will descend and march on the earth's mountaintops. The mountains will crumble beneath him, and the valleys will split apart like wax before a fire, like water dumped down a steep slope. All of this is because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the nation of Israel. So he's saying, your time is up. I have been patient with you, and it is over. There is condemnation towards what you have done. And what is the result of, of this going to be? I will turn Samaria into a heap of ruins. I'm going to level you. You are done. I know, right? You're like, I did not come for church like this today. I'm, it's going to be like a place to plant. It's going to be a dump of rubble. Not a fluffy message to hear. Right? Very, very heavy. Just a mat. I know it's hard to look at a text, but just think of a nation that was called to be the people of God, the priests, the prophets, the rulers. They were meant to be the message of hope. And this is what they said they were about to become. What happened? Micah 2 verse 1, Beware wicked schemers, those who devise calamity as they lie in bed. As soon as morning dawns, they carry out their plans. Because they have the power to do so, they confiscate the fields. They desire and seize the houses they want. They defraud people of their homes and deprive people of their land they have inherited. Therefore, the Lord says this, look, I am devising disaster for this nation. He's not talking about the wickedness of the world. It's so easy to be like, look what they're doing. Look how wicked that is. God says, no, this is about you. He says, look, I'm devising disaster. It will be like a yoke from which you cannot free your neck. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of catastrophe. So he says, you're not getting out of this one. If you look at the other minor prophets, there's many times where it's like, hey, this is coming, so you ought to change their ways. Very different message this time, right? It's very much time is up. This is coming. Catastrophe is coming. Why? 
you have been walking proudly. Again, not the world, the people of Israel and Judah. And chapter 1, he spends a long time before this pointing out all the different locations of Judah and Israel to say, hey, this covers everybody. Because it's so easy, especially for them, to be like, oh, if you're in Judah, you're like, Israel, they are horrible up there in the north. And then up there in the north, oh my gosh, did you see Jerusalem? Right? No, God says it's everyone. And what are they doing? Well, all day long, they're corrupt. This is no longer just the low, hidden society getting away with things. This is rampant through the entire kingdom. And it says, hey, even, even when you're not up in the day, you're scheming about what you're going to do tomorrow. What are they doing? They're, they're coveting each other's things. They're taking each other's things. They're defrauding each other from their possessions. They're, they're completely disregarding their fellow brother and sister. And God says, I've had it. I'm done with that. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty stark message that you got to go, well, how, how are they going to respond? Like, is there... Gosh, I mean, maybe they realize what they've done. Look at this response. Don't preach with such impassioned rhetoric, they say excitedly. These prophets should not preach of such things. We will not be overtaken by humiliation. Does the family of Jacob say the Lord's patience can't be exhausted? He would never do such things. And God's like, hey, to be sure, my commands do bring a reward. I am patient for those who obey me. But that's not you. Like, look at the arrogance that the people go, oh, this message must be for somebody else. How dare you accuse us of wrongdoing? They can't even see their own sin anymore. They can't even associate themselves with what they're actually partaking in. They're that blind to it. And, and, and they're so far gone that God says, hey, yeah, to be sure, I am patient with my people, but look what he says in response. But you rise up as an enemy against my people. You're no longer associated with me. You think you are, but you're now an enemy. You're in rebellion. You steal a robe from a friend, not even from the person that you think doesn't deserve it. You're stealing from your own fellow man who passed by peacefully as if returning from war. You wrongfully evict widows among my people from their cherished homes. You defraud children of their prized inheritance. Not only have you desired the things you shouldn't, but now you are taking advantage and attacking the ones that can't defend themselves, the ones that are hopeless, the ones that need somebody to look after them, you're stealing from them. It's, it's a very difficult message. And here's, here's a really important thing. So he says in verse 9, evict, right? You're evicting the widows out of their homes. Well, in verse 10, he says, okay, because you've evicted them, well, you're going to be the ones that are now evicted. You are no longer safe in this land. Because how often do we associate the physical proximity of being associated with God as protection, right? Well, for them, it was, I'm part of the promised land. I, I support the temple, so I must be safe because I know how to get right with God. 
right? Or for us, I go to church, so I'm going to be okay. We use our physical proximity and our association with godly things to be the thing that's meant to save us when it's time to get real about the sin in our life. It's a heavy message. And God says, you're now the ones that need to go. You're going to be scattered. I'm going to use Assyria to scatter you because this time for you is over. All right. Heavy message of judgment. Again, right after verse 10, he goes right into the promise. I will certainly gather. Notice the contrasting language, okay? Earlier in verse 11, I, or, uh, yeah, in verse 11, I said that they're going to be scattered. But then he's going to gather... All of you, O Jacob, I will certainly assemble those Israelites who remain in me. I will bring them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in the middle of a pasture. They will be so numerous that they will make a lot of noise. The one who can break through barriers will lead them out. They will break out, pass through the gate, and leave. Their king will advance before them, and the Lord himself will lead them. Okay, breath of fresh air. So God says, I'm done with those that have rebelled against me, but for those who remain, and that's a very common language that you see all throughout the Old Testament, when God condemns the people of Israel and, and, and wants to call out their acts of rebellion, he says there is always a remnant. There's always a remnant, faithful people. It may be a small group, but they are there. And notice it doesn't say, you will be spared from this bad doing, you will be spared from catastrophe. No, it says you will be gathered again. There will be a return. There will be a future day where I will restore and look after those. And again, the shepherd language is very common again throughout Scripture of God saying, I will be your watch. I will protect you. You will be my sheep. It's very much connected to John 10, right? We're going to get there in a second. But I want to point out verse 13 because it feels a little off, right? You're like, okay, I can get this. You're safe. You can graze. You know, they're, they're happy. They're making noise. Okay, what's, what's this break through the barriers? For Israel, for those that knew his word, this would have been very encouraging. I like how another translation, I think it's NASB, says the breach maker. And I love that term. Because for them, they would have instantly had a light go off in their head and go, okay, God says, you know how Moses, you know how I raised him up in Egypt to deliver you out of captivity from Egypt and how I led you out? Well, in the same way, I will be your deliverer again. I will, I will raise up a shepherd that will go out. And this is where it connects to John 10. And what, you know, they didn't have this. We do to be able to look at John 10. And it's one of Jesus's great I am passages. It's when he claims I am the great shepherd. And what does it say in John 10? He says, I will gather the sheep. They will know my voice. And I will go out and I will break through the gate. I will lead them. He is the great breach maker. How incredible is that? He's still, despite the consequence for Israel and Judah's sin, God says, I will still break through. I will still break through captivity and lead you to freedom. True freedom that matters. 
that comes at the cost of sacrifice of his son that we know now. Very powerful message there. Now, again, I talked about it's whiplash. So that was that first section. We're going to look at the second section now. And what I want, to, I want you to notice is the first section was about the people in general and their acts of violence against each other and coveting and stealing and being corrupt. Now look at uh, Micah 3 verse 1. I said, listen, here's that word that I said begins each one, leaders of Jacob, rulers of the nation of Israel. You ought to know. You know better. You know what is just, yet you hate what is good, and you love what is evil. Now look at this. This is harsh. You flay my people's skin and rip the flesh from their bones. Okay, that's uncomfortable. What are you talking about? Okay, it's easy for us to go, okay, well, when, I'm, when I mistreat somebody or I speak, um, you know, uh, disrespectfully to someone, it's, okay, it was wrong, I'll, I'll get forgiven. No, God says, no, you're attacking that person, right? It's the same symbolic um, exaggeration of, of God saying, this is how serious I am about this sin. When you lust, you commit adultery. When you take from your fellow brother and sister, you're cannibals. You, you're just eating each other alive. He wants them to see, I am serious about the establishment of my truth and my law, and you've broken it. So stop trying to get out of it. And notice, this is to the leaders and the rulers of the nation. This is why James 3 says, not many of you should be leaders, because the responsibility is greater and the judgment is harsher. He's calling out the people, and now he's calling out the leaders. And what's the result? Well, in verse 4, it says this. You will lose your light. There will be darkness. You will lose your voice. You're supposed to be the ones that are leading people to God. But you're the ones furthest from it. And you're sending them the complete wrong direction. So the thing that you were supposed to be the voice of the nation, you're going to lose it. And how, it's easy to look at this text and go, gosh, they must have gone really far and they probably don't even, um, you know, don't even realize what they're doing. But I think there's one sin affects your heart to the point of how can I get the advantage? Well, I'm just trying to take care of fill in the blank myself, my family. I'm just trying to be good enough. And as soon as we establish the wrong motive, the wrong virtue, we will allow our justice system within ourselves to be completely corrupted, all the while doing it in His name. And God says, you, He goes on in this chapter, He goes on to say, you'll hear words but they won't mean anything to you. That is an incredibly scary place to be. And I'm going to be honest with you, Hillside. I've actually been there. I'm on staff at this church. I've been a part of this church with my family for almost 20 years now. And I know I can look back in my life and recognize points in my life where I have been here on Sunday. I have sung songs of praise. 
but they are doing nothing to my heart. I can pray. I have known times where I have been in prayer with you and have absolute cold numbness to where I am because my heart is so far from God that I can no longer hear Him. And it is one of the scariest places to be because it's on me. And thank goodness for His grace. Thank goodness for the accountability relationships I have with some disciples in my life that can recognize that and God can use them to call me out. And it is it does not feel good to have the light shined on you. But thank goodness for confession and restoration. Because once you do hear his voice again, there's a difference. I don't want the faith community to just be about, well, I want to feel good. I just need to get to next week. I just need to get to the next thing. All the while, we're willing to compromise on all the truths that God has laid for us. And in turn, we're leading the people down a process that is completely opposite to what God wants for their life. Now you're leading people astray. That's why this is so heavy for the leaders. Look at this. This is the same chapter. Listen to this, you leaders of the family of Jacob. We're in verse 9. You rulers of the nation of Israel, you hate justice and pervert all that is right. You build Zion through bloody crimes, Jerusalem through unjust violence. Her leaders take bribes when they decide legal cases. Her priests proclaim rulings for profit, and her prophets read omen for pay. Yet they claim, here's the proud stance again on themselves, to trust the Lord. And they say, the Lord is among us. Disaster won't overtake us. How devastating is that to see the leaders are willing to be compromised and do whatever they can to make the people happy, to be liked and praised among the people, to make an extra buck? This is the prosperity televangelist. I'll say whatever fluffy, feel-good message you want. And it has no grounding in God's holy, just character, His seriousness of sin, and the condemnation of it, and the restoration that we can have and the joy we can have in Him. This is the celebrity Christian YouTuber that will put whatever two-minute soundbite they can get out there for us to like that page. Good vibes, man, right? It's always good. Oh, I just want good vibes. Let's not be toxic. What? Yes, we know that. I want good vibes too, but it's not found here. God says, you're missing it. I have good things for you. I have joy for you. I have pastures for you. But you've abandoned my entire desire for your life. And all the while, you're taking out the other people around you, not the enemy, your own friends and family. You're missing it. So where's the hope, right? And, and, and he says in verse 12, Zion, you're going to be leveled. And again, there's whiplash. What's the second promise here? 
And in future days, there's always an imminent judgment, but in the future days, the Temple Mount will be the most important mountain of all. It will be risen up again. It will be more prominent than other hills, and people will stream to it. Chapter 4 goes on to say, I will restore, I will gather, nations will stream to the temple because I will establish my shepherd king on the throne. I will put the rightful heir to the throne who is truly just. And it says you will no longer need your weapons. It says that weapons will be mended into agricultural tools because you will no longer fight amongst each other. There will be peace, true peace. I mean, just, I don't think any of us remember exactly what peace feels like right now. But he says there will be peace. He says you will have your own vine and fig tree. In other words, you will have food and drink. You will have all you need. I will provide. And you know what it says for those that have been persecuted, the ones that have been evicted wrongfully and defrauded by their, by their fellow man? And that day says the Lord, this is verse 6 and 7 of 4, that day says the Lord, I will gather the lame and assemble the outcasts whom I injured. I will transform the lame into the nucleus of the nation, into the core. You will be the central core. You will be risen up. The Lord will reign over them on Mount Zion from that day and forevermore. And how will he do this? How will he do this? Chapter 5, we have one of the most prominent messianic promises of the Old Testament of assigning where Jesus is coming from, from Bethlehem, from low Bethlehem. All of you in Jerusalem and Samaria, you were the epicenter cities. You thought yourself so high and mighty. I will lay you out. But from the low, humbled Bethlehem, seemingly insignificant amongst the clans, the king will emerge. He comes from ancient days. The Lord will hand the people of Israel over to their enemies for a time, or until a time, the woman gives birth. Then the rest of the king's countrymen will return and be united. He will assume his post. He will be the rightful heir. He will be the king. He will be shepherd of the people. He will watch over them. They will live securely, for at that time he will be honored, and he will give peace. Not temporary, not until the next person's in office. Peace. Period. An absolutely incredible promise there. You know what I love about thinking about the, the ones that are injured and the ones that have been taken advantage of, how he will restore them? It reminds me of Matthew 5, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's a difficult thing to grasp, And the idea of we like to associate blessing and favor with God with good standing of, um, well, if I have money and if my family is healthy, then I'm in his favor. And then we like to think, well, if you're sick or something bad happens to you or you lose your job, well, then you must not be in favor. And God says, no, that's not the case. That's not how it works. I will have favor and I will have the final word for justice and I will restore. But there is a day first that must happen for a cleansing and a purification of what has gone wrong. The second half of chapter 5, I'm going I'm to just summarize it for the sake of time. But in the second half of chapter, chapter 5, it talks about how God will be with those that follow him in the uh, 
in the scattering. So even though you're about to be taken by Assyria, I still will be there. I'm not abandoning you. It's why Jeremiah 29 connects to this. Jeremiah 29 actually is speaking to the people that are about to be taken by the Babylonian empire a little bit later. And it says what? I have plans for you, plans for you to prosper, right? That message is being given to them right before they're about to be enslaved by Babylon. And so that's quite the promise for God to say, though you will go into captivity, I will still be there. And what a great relief that is. To know that no matter what we go through, when we trust in him, when we lay our life before him, even when bad happens, God will be there to those that remain with him. Even when I am hurt and devastated and taken advantage of and violated, he is still there. Thank goodness for that. And God says in the second half of five, he says, I'm going to take away your horses and your chariots and your idols and your statues. He says, those will all be taken away. Because how often do we associate, again, when there's worldly success, when we have a lot of things and we have our life situated, we get what? Comfortable. And you know how how easy it is to recognize if something's become an idol or a false sense of security to you? Let it be taken away. If you're scrambling and and concerned and and lost, and maybe you were leaning a little too much on that good standing to be your salvation. When God says, no, it's got to be in me alone. I'm going to make sure. And he does this to his own people. And it's for our good. We lean too much on our own self-righteousness, our self-boasting. And and what does 1 Corinthians 1 say? Paul says, we're only to boast in him. All right. Chapter 6 establishes and reminds us the seriousness of this situation. It establishes a courtroom scene, okay? God says, I have a lawsuit against the people in chapter 6. He says, bring the witnesses and people, you are the defendants. I have called upon the witnesses of the mountains, and I, I, I just think it's an absolute jab because he's like, hey, the thing that is oldest on this earth that has seen it all, they're who's going to witness this. Good luck trying to get away with it because what do we do? As soon as we're caught in our sin, as soon as we're caught in wrong, what do we do? We do one of two things. Number one, we try to argue all the good that we've done. Well, but, okay, I did that. But, yeah, look at this. I'm a good person. And then the other thing we do when we realize that won't work, oh, Whose problem is it? Either somebody else's or God himself. God, you must be an angry God. How dare you want to take on me? How dare you want to destroy me? And God says in in 6, he says, that won't work. You have no evidence. And he goes, you want to blame me? I've been more than patient with you. I've been very slow to anger. I've been merciful. And he reminds them, hey, didn't I lead you out of Egypt? Didn't I rescue you from demise time and time again? I've given you those chances. And so then Micah, in his own words, he asks in chapter 6, uh, verse 6 and 7, with what should I enter the Lord's presence? With what should I bow before the sovereign God? Should I enter his presence with burnt offerings, year old calves? Will the Lord accept a thousand rams or 10,000 streams of olive oil? Should I give him my firstborn child as payment? 
Do you see the, the idiocracy of the idea that we can do anything that satisfies what God is asking? No. It should feel overwhelming. There's nothing we can do. We're not good enough. So what is there to do? Micah 6.8. He has told you, oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness or, or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You've made it complicated. When you pursue your own good standing and well-being and safety, you lose sight of the simple thing of God saying, I want you to go after the things I desire and I will take care of you so that I can use you to be ambassadors and the hands and feet of showing the world who I am and the love I have and the hope that they can have in me and you've missed it. And so here's what I want to be honest about with this verse. Because I've seen this verse a hundred times on social media in the last six months. And, I, and, and, and before we shake it in somebody else's face, I sat on this verse for two weeks straight and said, what are you saying to me, God? Not how can I show this to somebody else? What are you doing to me? And I had a moment where I spent time with one, Psalm 139. It says, search me, O God, know me and my anxious thoughts. Look for anything offensive within me so that I may go in the everlasting way. Where have I missed this? Because I, I know God. I claim to know him. I know his son. I understand his word. But you know what humbly can translate to in some translations? Carefully. And it's this idea of we are to walk with a God who's our father who takes steps in the sand and puts footprints, right? And it's kind of like the child going behind him and carefully taking steps that follow after him. He's saying you lost it. And I care about people. I'm not asking you to cheer from the sidelines for justice. I'm asking you to be and go do justice. He's asking you to love mercy. Not just support it. Not just like it. It's not enough to care. You have to have compassion in action, God says. And I know this is a heavy message. I know. But it was for me first. I never say anything to you here on this stage if I haven't examined this according to my own heart. And I want to be honest with you, Hillside. I haven't done enough. I don't want to hear, no, Cody, you're a good, you're a good person. We like you. No. I know what God's asking of me. I know the minute I read this, and I'm telling you I've come up short It's very easy to take care of your friends and family, the ones you like. <laughs> take care of the one you don't know. Take care, of the, go out. It's going to have to be beyond your own home. It's going to have to be beyond your own community. It's so easy for us to, if somebody comes through that door that's bloodied up and beaten up, it's the equivalent of, if you'll just come here, I'll help you out. Come on. 
No, if someone came through that door, I'm running to them. I am going to assist them immediately and let go of all the comforts and the safety of where I'm standing. That's what God's asking of his people. So in chapter 7, it's the final chapter. I'll let you read it on your own. I'm going to show you one verse from it, but, or a section. But Micah is absolutely devastated. He is upset and torn within his own demise, within Israel's demise. He's, he's devastated because he knows this has to happen. And he, and he says, gosh, there's not a good man left. The best one among you is like a thorn, he says. It's horrible. But he still has hope. He says, I will wait upon the Lord. I will look to the Lord. Even though I am a sinner myself, even though I have done wrong, I know that when I trust in him, when I lay myself down before him, I know that he will restore, that I will wait for him and he will restore. And here's the beautiful part. Micah ends with a play on sentence to his own name. His name means who is like God. Look at verse 18. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons the rebellion of those who remain among his people, who does not stay angry forever, but delights in showing loyal love, who will once again have mercy on us, who will conquer our evil deeds, who will hurl all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will be loyal to Jacob and extend your loyal love to Abraham, which you promised on oath to our ancestors in ancient times. God is faithful to his word. He established a covenant relationship with the people of Israel to say, I will be a blessing to you. I will deliver you. I will restore you despite what you have done. And even though you have violated my law, for those that come to me and confess and repent, I will restore. And I will use you to do great things. There is no God like our God. You know, the world is really good at condemning for wrong things. But they're horrible at restoring. And I'm thankful that our God alone, there is no one like him, restores. Todd, if you want to go ahead and take this away to get ready for music, that would be awesome. Here's what I want to say. What does this mean for us? Because Micah 6.8 looks a whole lot different to me now that I've seen it in light, uh, in light of, of what has happened to them and what God said before those verses. This is, this is a couple of the thoughts of I, that I have. First of all, remember John 10? It's a great chapter. You ought to look at it. God says, again, as Jesus being the shepherd, he says, the promise that I have for the sheep, right, that are in this fold, he says, I also have sheep that are not of this fold that I will gather in my name. We will be one flock with one shepherd in verses uh, 14 through 16. And that's a reminder that the promises of restoration and hope for the, for the remnant of Israel apply to us. That God is seeking us to be his followers. That he offers a safe haven and a hope that goes beyond whatever happens here. Because frankly, being relieved of suffering and pain on this earth, I mean, that's convenient and comfortable, but that's not the end. There's still more to come. And so God says, though there may be despair now, 
I will deliver you in future days to the ultimate promise. So I have two challenges for us. First, to the follower of Christ. Look at Micah 6.8. And I challenge you, let him search you. I'm not here to tell you what's right and wrong in your life by my standards, by my eyes. Let him have an honest conversation with you. And is there something that doesn't belong? And if there is, let it go. Is there reconciliation maybe that you need to have with a fellow brother or sister? Is there someone that you need to ask forgiveness from? Or is there someone you need to show mercy to? Is there somebody that you completely disagree with that you can't stand and you need to let it go and give it to him? And then my question is, what more could you do? What is God asking you to do? Don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer, right? James 1.21. And this is the second group of people I want to talk to today. For those that have been hurt, trampled on, violated, taken advantage of, that act of injustice will not have the final word on you. God is a God who heals and protects and restores and he knows the truth of what happened to you. And where the world may say, forget about it, that didn't happen, that's not the way it was, he knows. And God will have his justice and God will condemn those acts. But I want you to know that he's here He knows you and can do a divine restoration of your soul to the place of finding joy and peace. He is the great breach maker. He is our shepherd that will take out the walls, break us through from captivity to the point of true freedom in Christ. It is in Christ alone. I want to pray together this morning before we sing. God, we thank you for your word. You are serious about sin because you are serious about your love and justice and righteousness. And Lord, we don't have what it takes to be in in right standing with you. But you have offered your son. You say in John 10, you have laid down your life for us that trust in you, that trust in your son. And all of the iniquities, all of the injustices, all of the pain, the suffering, you have taken care of in the grave. And to that we praise you. And to know that you have resurrected your son to be the first of many, we can look forward to a day in the future days where we'll be together again in pastures of peace and provision and worship to you, Heavenly Father. I pray, God, that if there's someone in this room today, if there's someone online today that needs to know you, that needs to trust in you, that needs to find forgiveness for what they've done wrong, that they may find it and that they may may hear your voice. We can rest in you and know that we are to go out and be ambassadors of your justice and mercy and grace through the power and name of Jesus and the gospel to the world. In your name we pray, amen.
the world needs Jesus right now. This song is new. Reflect in it if you need to or join in when you're comfortable.